I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk the mighty Mississippi River, we'll talk OPEC, and we'll talk China and chips. All on this next episode of The Trade Guys, coming up right now. Gentlemen, we've got the band back together. The Trade Guys are back. Thanks to the amazing Emily Benson for hosting last week and probably the week before and the week before that. You know, I figured it was time to get like a really good host. So we got Emily. Yes. You know, Andrew, uh, we reviewed your performance in front of the uh, Australian uh, think tank we talked to last week. So we'll leave that. We'll leave that as a surprise for you. Oh, my. Okay. Oh, Oh, boy. I had no idea. This has not come my way yet. The Aussies have not contacted me. So it's got to catch up on your mail. That's all. Okay. All right. Here we go. You're clearly one of those people who is not afraid of getting replaced if they don't show up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, I just like, I, like I said, I mean, like it's time the trade guys got a good host. So, you know, we need to get Emily. <laughs> Fair enough. We haven't tested Emily's knowledge of either music or football. yet. Oh, she knows a lot about music. She knows a lot about music. I know that. And football, you know, I mean, I, I wouldn't put anything past Emily Benson. I think yeah. she probably knows everything about football there is to know. She may not be as into the Ohio State Buckeyes as, as Scott and I are, but you know, yeah, yeah, that's right. Very few. I flew into Detroit yesterday, and all they could talk about was Michigan versus Penn State, which oh, is tomorrow's game. That's yeah. right. That's big. In Ann Arbor. So that's a, that's actually a big game. That is really big. So, you know, one of my son's best friends goes to Michigan. Well, two of his best friends go to Michigan. And it, it's very interesting because one of them asked the other one to borrow a sweatshirt for the game. And they're roommates and fraternity brothers. And the one, Alexi, says to Jacob, he goes, I, I can't let you wear that sweatshirt because I haven't debuted it yet. That's how well, big these Michigan fans take their, you know, game day apparel and everything like that. So, you know. Styling. Yeah. Yeah. So shout out to the Michigan people out there. Shout out to the Penn State people out there. Uh, my dad taught at Penn State. My uncle went to Penn State. And it's a bye week for Ohio State, so we can be reasonably neutral It is a bye week. And, and I would say I'm a Penn State fan to some extent, but not this weekend because Saquon Barkley is playing the Ravens, and I'm very nervous. But meanwhile, speaking of getting ba- the band back together, Mississippi Shipping isn't actually the name of Scott's new bluegrass band, right? But it is an international trade problem with ripple yes. effects. So, guys, what's going on? Well, I was in a bluegrass band at one point. We never had a name quite as clever as that. It's a, it's a long time in the past. But what is happening is there has been inadequate rainfall this year yeah. in the Mississippi Basin. And, you know, by the way, I mean, most Americans know enough geography to know how massive the, the Mississippi River Basin is. The headwaters of the Mississippi are in, are in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Yeah. And the Ohio River feeds in in Illinois, but it but it begins, the headwaters are the the three rivers in Pittsburgh that, that form the Ohio. So this is, um, uh, and the Missouri River is an additional major navigable tributary. So basically, the farm economy has long been dependent on barge movement of their products on the Mississippi and its tributaries. It's a very important waterway. Farmers have a, num- a number of advantages in the United States. The large tracts of arable land is part of it. 
But also keep in mind that the Northwest Ordinance, which goes back to 1787, the Confederation Congress made for farm roads on one-mile intervals throughout the Northwest Territory. So you go to Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, all those states that were part of the Northwest Territory have these very efficient farm roads. They're still in use today. In fact, um, I'm in Northwest Ohio. I was driving on one earlier today. But the, the Mississippi is a key waterway for farm products and many other items. It's always more efficient to move things on water than it is on land because of the just the physics of moving a boat that floats versus a, a truck that has to overcome inertia or a train, same way. So what's happening because of low water, it's a double effect. One is the barges cannot be loaded as heavily as they normally would because they'll scrape bottom. Not enough water. That's right. There's not enough water to float them. So each barge is carrying less, and there are fewer barges because of the width of the river is, ne- is not navigable bank to bank. So uh, it, it's a problem. It's one that Europe faced with the Danube, which is a v- vitally important waterway for most of Europe. And they faced it this year because of drought conditions. We're having the same thing with the Mississippi now. And look, there are always good years and bad. I was thinking about there's lots of people who are concerned about climate change, but I, I went back to the book of Genesis. And when Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, he had the dream that there were seven plentiful years and seven lean years. And so weather changes, there are periods of drought, there are periods of flooding, and that's part of life on the river. But this is just one more problem for the supply chain. What comes next, Scott? Locusts? Uh, I was hope- I was really hoping for frogs first, frogs. but we'll see. Spoils, spoils. <laughs> frogs would be a good one. But- oh, man. The Mississippi River, though, really is a mythical part of American culture. We were talking about Johnny Cash a few minutes ago before we started the podcast. I mean, I taught that Weeping Willow how to cry, cry, cry is all about the Mississippi River, of course, and going down the Mississippi River. I spent a lot of time when I was at Tulane in New Orleans looking at the Mississippi River. We have a wonderful park that backs up to the Audubon Zoo that is known as the Fly. You just hang out on basically on the on this levee on the Mississippi River and watch the barges go by. And it is really terrific. And my middle son, Eli, is now enjoying that as a sophomore at Tulane. And and I get jealous from time to time when he emails or he texts me on Fridays and says he's uh, over at the Mississippi River by the Audubon Zoo. Well, uh, look, uh, Mark Twain's best nonfiction book, at least uh, in terms of a management handbook, Life on the Mississippi. Yeah, for sure. So shipping is so important on the Mississippi economically. Bill, I wanted to ask you, you know, what can we do to ease these kinds of climate change induced shipping problems? That's a good question. And I don't have a good answer. I mean, if it's it's drought. I used to work actually used to work on weather modification on the hill. I had a uh, my boss at one point was one who was interested in, you know, salting the clouds to create rainfall, but that's not a natural remedy. Um, I think what happens economically is people don't sit around and wait for rain. They look for alternatives. And the alternatives are, unfortunately, inferior for the reasons Scott said. First of all, they're mostly trucks, which means fossil fuels and more pollution. But one of the things that I think happens in the business world is when this kind of thing comes along, there's a lot of moaning, whining, and complaining. But at the same time, there's an effort to say, all right, we can't use the barge this month. What are we going to do instead? And then they find an alternative. And it's usually a, a truck. But I don't think there's a good... Uh, There's not a good weather answer. And the climate solutions that the government is pursuing, which I think are all good ones, they're sort of, they're long term. They're not going to change anything, you know, in the next year or two. Well, immediately, the world's short of calories already. And if U.S. farm exports 
are impeded, which they would be by something like that. So the Mississippi is is the transport mechanism for most U.S. farm exports. And so uh, that's just one more problem that uh, is topping the others uh, in terms of food security. So it's, it's something to pay close attention to. It's going to affect people's lives. The, uh, the Corps of Engineers is dredging to yes. deep in the center. That's really palliative. You know, if the water flow is inadequate, they're just going to have to keep on doing that. And it, it's kind of a never-ending struggle, I think. Well, I'm going to propose that we take a field trip down to New Orleans to investigate what is going on in the, at the mouth of the Mississippi. Here's what we'll do. We'll go to Domelisi's. We'll get some shrimp po'boys, shrimp and oyster po'boys. We'll stop by daiquiris and get a nice daiquiri to go with that and take it up to the levee that I was telling you about. And we can do a lot of field research there. Are you up for it, guys? Sign me up. (laughs) I did that a few years ago. My wife is a CPA. And in Maryland, you have to be regularly relicensed, keep your CPA license. And that means you have to take a lot of continuing education courses in order to be certified. And this has given rise to this wonderful cottage industry where the courses take place you know, on board ship. They take place near national parks. They take place where it's fun to go. And they have them in New Orleans. So one year we went to uh, New Orleans so she could take a class. And it was a wonderful system. You know, the class meant from eight to 12 every morning. And that was it. So I slept in and then I went out and did touristy things all morning. And then all afternoon, evening, we were free to do whatever we wanted. Yeah. Then you could really do your research after class outside of the classroom. Visited different levees, different plantations, went out to Cajun country and ate shamelessly. It was great. That is music to my ears. Well, let's talk about some other music, China chip controls. Last week, BIS unveiled a series of export control measures on a variety of high-tech items, including semiconductors, semiconductor manufacturing equipment, and supercomputers. And this is all in an attempt I suppose, to limit China's ability to acquire advanced technologies that it could use for military purposes. So it brings us to the question here. This was kind of big news last week, wasn't it? What do these export controls actually do? Well, it was in the news. It's going to stay in the news because it's an important policy shift. First, a shout out to our colleague, Greg Allen at CSIS, who's written a very, very good, relatively short 11-page paper on what they did and how it affects Primarily AI, artificial intelligence, because he's an AI specialist. And that's not the only thing that was affected, but it's a very good paper. And for those of you listening out there that follow export controls, I recommend you take a look at it because it's quite specific about which companies are going to be affected and which technologies are going to be affected. And it's very enlightening. And you can find that on the CSIS homepage. We've had it up there for the last couple of days. And it's, you know, the rules they put out are 137 pages. So digestion has been a problem here and trying to figure out exactly what happens. It's been a problem. It's not easy reading. It's relatively impenetrable, but it first starts with a change of policy. And I have to begin there. And and it was quite clear in the speech that National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave three weeks ago. And the one he gave again, I guess the day before yesterday at Georgetown, where he said basically that our policy of keeping the other guys, in this case, China, one or two generations behind us is no longer an adequate policy. And we have to move more aggressively, not simply to keep them behind, but to degrade their military capabilities. In other words, to make them less capable than they are now and make it more difficult for them to move forward in the military sphere. And the announcement last week was intended to do that. And in particular, they're focusing on AI and on uh, high-performance computing, supercomputing. And what they did basically was intended to choke off access 
Chinese access to high-end AI chips to choke off Chinese access to chip design software to make it harder for the Chinese to make their own AI chips, to limit their ability to uh, manufacture any kind of high-end chips by blocking exports of U.S. built semiconductor manufacturing equipment, lithography equipment, the equipment that does everything from cut the wafers and, and uh, deposit all those little lines on the chips and all the other things that go along with it. We've always restricted that, but we're expanding our restrictions to cover some machinery that we had been letting go. So we're pulling back a little bit, and we're also blocking them from producing their own semiconductor manufacturing equipment by limiting access to U.S.-built components for that equipment. They also addressed a problem, so-called entities list. The entities list is a list of, of, for lack of a better word, bad companies. And if you're on the entities list, it means a license is required for anything going to you. And one of the, the problem with the entities list, one of the problems with the entities list is you know, if you stop and think about it, it's sort of obvious, and that's front companies. So a company gets put on the entities list, and a week later, it creates a front company with a different name and starts all over again. And so government is constantly playing catch up, trying to track down these new entities that are, in fact, the same as the old entities, but they're not on the list. What the commerce has done is to excel, create a process that allows them to catch those front companies faster and put them on the list faster without going as, through as many steps as they do now. A lot of it's also, a lot of its restrictions on the chips are also aimed at high-performance computers, also designed to limit China's uh, defense and military capabilities. Does anybody ever confuse the entities list with an enemies list? <laughs> the, China, the Chinese would probably say it's the same thing. Same thing, right? Bigger problem is, is list proliferation. Because Treasury has several, the Defense Department has several, Commerce has more than one. In addition to the entities list, they also addressed what they call their unverified list. And the unverified list is the list of companies where they can't guarantee the bona fides of the company. And if you recall, I mean, this is changing too. And this is a, the, the policy shift of last week portends more policy shifts. For 25 years, we've pursued a keep them, keep them behind policy, and that's changing. And for 25 years, I hate to say it, this all started when I was there. For the last 25 years, we've also pursued an end-user-based system. That is, we, don't, we look at who's getting the item, who's getting the chip, who's getting the computer. And if it's not the People's Liberation Army, if it's not military, if it's a bank or the Chinese National Railway, I remember we licensed a computer there, we approve those because they're civilian entities. And the stuff we're talking about is what's called dual use. So it has benign civilian applications. It also has not so benign military applications. The problem the Biden administration has run into is that China, we didn't do this. China did this. They announced what they call a civil military fusion policy. And that is essentially uh, the government saying to companies, whether you're a civilian manufacturer or a defense manufacturer, we may come to you and tell you that you need to divert your production or divert your uh, R&D or your technology to military use because we are fusing the two technologies, if you will. What that means in practical terms for us is there are no longer any reliable end users in China. They are all suspect because the Chinese government can, has said they could come in at any point and say, now you need to start doing military things. That's going to push us back in the direction of broader sort of blanket controls like we had in the, in the Cold War. In the short run, what the administration has been doing has been adding companies to these lists. 
Because if you add a company to the entities list, then the licensing decision is very simple. You need a license for everything. You don't have to decide if it's good, if it's benign or not so benign. You don't have to decide what they're going to use it for. You just have to get a license. Now, the government approves some of those. You know, the government has approved licenses for Huawei, which has resulted in some criticism from the Hill. But the licenses they've approved are for low-end stuff that doesn't matter. But I think you're going to see a change in policy. And you may see, the, the, in a way, the demise of the unverified list, because if it doesn't matter if you're a reliable end user or not anymore, then verifying your reliability isn't as important as it used to be. So I would say uh, stay tuned for further shifts. Scott, does China have any recourse against this? They're plotting their own path forward here. And look, Bill can get into what they might do, but certainly they've changed their policy that has frustrated our, our dual-use system, the end-user system. We have moved to put in place something much more complicated. I understand why we got to the new system. My main concern is it's really going to have a lot of inertia and complexity in making it work. But Bill can tell you about uh, Chinese countermeasures. They always retaliate, not right away, you know, wait for it. And in this case, with the 20th Party Congress coming up, I would wait for it after that. But that's next month, so it's not a long wait. They always retaliate. They retaliate in an amount that is a commensurate with what they believe to be the damage that's been done to them. And they are pretty good at doing something that will hurt us and not them. And, you know, in the trade world, a lot of things are double-edged swords. When Trump put on the tariffs, for example, yeah, it hurt Chinese imports, but then the Chinese retaliated and that hurt China, American exports. And for companies that had supply chains that involved Chinese parts and components, it was a double whammy. You know, your parts got more expensive because of our tariffs and your exports got more expensive because of Chinese tariffs. The Chinese are, are better than we are, I think, at figuring out things that don't really touch them, but hurt us. I think they, there's two categories of things they could do. One is they could make life miserable for American companies operating there. And they have a history of doing that. And it's clever because they don't announce that. What they do is they send in health and safety inspectors who suddenly find violations. They may have been in two weeks ago and there weren't any, but uh, all of a sudden there are lots of violations and then they shut the plant down. And slows everything down on the U.S. side. And they don't say it's because we're getting even. They say it's because you have a health violation. The other thing they can do is we are not, we have supply chains that have Chinese exports that are integral parts. Uh, the classic piece is batteries. And we've talked about this, but batteries include a lot of minerals. Uh, there's a big five, graphite, cobalt, lithium, I think cadmium and copper. China is very big in several of those, lithium in particular. And if they wanted to cut that off, that would make things very inconvenient for people that are trying to make batteries. Now, in reality, on that particular case, they're going to get stuck because our EV tax credit, as we've discussed before, tells companies you can't get the credit as long as you have any Chinese parts and components or minerals in right. your supply chain. So companies are going to be forced to change anyway, but they can't do it that quickly. And an immediate cutoff would cause a, a decent amount of disruption in, in either our economy, or it depends on if they just cut, off, cut us off or if they cut everybody off. Cutting off just us would be a very clear WTO violation. And actually cutting off everybody would be a WTO violation anyway. You know, they did that before on rare earths. We took them into the WTO and we won and, and they backed off of that one. But that doesn't mean they won't do it again. So, yeah, there's things that they can do that would make uh, uh, that would make us unhappy. Well, I guess we'll have to strap in and wait and see. Another thing that is making us unhappy right now is OPEC. 
OPEC has recently, as we all know, decided to slow oil production. What options does the Biden administration have in dealing with this? Well, the biggest one is domestic production. Amen. Amen. J.P. Mor- uh, Morgan Chase uh, Chairman Jamie Dimon was interviewed this week, and he couldn't have been more frank and clear because he basically said, look, when, when the Ukraine invasion happened, that was the time to pivot away and begin to, from a geopolitics standpoint, begin to expand domestic production. That's the way to manage the price of oil. That's the way to support our allies in this so they don't have energy poverty this winter. That's, I think, the obvious thing that is there and ready to do. The Biden administration thus far has approved fewer licenses for uh, oil and gas operations on federal land than any administration since the Nixon administration. So that's the obvious thing we could do. I did get a chuckle out of Senator uh, Markey's proposal that uh, the, where Senator Markey wants, he wants to take OPEC to the WTO. And uh, that, that has a slight problem, the, the most important of one of which is that oil is not one of the goods that's within the scope of WTO agreements. It's a, it's a sort of historical quirk. But the fact of the matter is, there, during the early days of the GATT, up until 1973, there was no one who was a member of the GATT demanding that oil be included in the tariff schedules, so nobody did just wasn't really something that anybody wanted to spend a lot of time on. And then from 1973 on, it became a strategic matter. And so even when Saudi Arabia and others and Russia, both both OPEC plus members, when they joined the WTO, there were no bindings, no tariff bindings on, on crude oil. Okay, And so OPEC operates as a cartel. That's what they do. Cartels operate to con- control prices. And they, it was in their interest to have higher prices. And the WTO doesn't really have a whole heck of a lot to say about it at this point. Sorry to disappoint Senator Markey about this, and uh, but you can only take action on what the other country is obligated themselves to. Well, so this is how you know that we're truly bipartisan CSIS and truly bipartisan trade guys, because you know we've had uh, Senator Rubio be a little bit uh, annoyed with us before. Now we're going to have Senator Markey. Be annoyed with us. So we are equal opportunity agitators, annoyers, and and we're we're good at it. But I want to I want to <laughs> respond right. to uh, Scott a little bit. I mean, in theory, you're right. The way to break a cartel is to create alternate sources of production and undercut their pricing. And you you know you basically you break the monopoly that way. But there are reasons why this cartel has operated successfully since 1973. It's very hard to do that because most of the oil producers are in the cartel. Uh, we are not. Can we ramp up production? You know, at, for the first 35 years of that, the answer was no. You know, we were dependent on imports. Now that we've, you know, developed new technologies that are uh, enabling recovery of uh, oil deposits that were previously unrecoverable, the answer is now, yes, we're moving towards probably already reached technically energy independence. But does that mean that we can produce enough to undermine the cartel? I think in the short run, the answer is clearly no. I mean, if you start talking about leases, granting the lease is just the first step. You know, then you, oh, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to explore. You've got to find actual deposits. Because a lease is for a tract of either ocean or, or land, depending on where it is. And all the lease gives you is the right to drill and explore. So it takes a while. And then if you, if you find something, it takes even longer to drill the well and start producing it. So 
if you want, if you want to destroy the cartel cartel in 2035, you know, this is a good strategy, but it's not a good strategy for right now. Well, I'm not, I'm not actually interested in whether OPEC survives or not. I'm interested in what's the right geopolitical move versus Russia. And at this point, with short supply caused by sanctions on Russia, okay, the United States could fill a role here that it's not, okay? And so we are, we are trading our, our climate change diplomacy for a weakened geopolitical stance, cost push inflation in the United States, and more people with energy poverty during the, the winter. And I, I don't know what's going to happen with the cartel, but I do know there's a geopolitical issue right now. And look, if Senator Markey wants to take action here, first thing to do is look in a mirror, because I think most Democratic senators voted to confirm all the Biden appointees in Interior, EPA, and the other agencies that have responsibility for their policy and start getting toward a more balanced policy that addresses the geopolitical problems we've created for ourselves. Scott, you're sounding more and more like Joe Manchin every day. It's like the, the solar panels we talked about before. This is a case where policy goals conflict. In the long term, it's in our policy interest to move away from fossil fuels, if only for climate reasons. So what you're suggesting would take us backwards on a range of other policies, and it would help it make, draw us further away from our COP20, whatever it is, our Paris. Uh, well, you, you recall what, what Keynes said about the long run. So In the long run, we're all dead, yes. That's but right. I, but, you know, <laughs> it's not about us, Scott. It's about our grandchildren. Yes. And now we both yes. have some. We, we both have some, and I'd, I'd prefer a geopolitically strong America for my grandchildren. So. Yeah, it's a really interesting discussion, guys, because the, yeah, there's not an obvious, easy answer. That's right. Yeah. And either way you go on this, it has long term ramifications. So we'll have to stop it there, but we will be back. Hopefully you'll have a, a good host, you know, and uh, we'll go from there. So thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. All right. Thank you. To our listeners. If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.